Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. I love these men and women and the gifts and the talents that they bring to the table. And when they all get up here at one time, it just demonstrates to us how gracious God is to have given us such a people, how gracious he has been to me to give me a people such as you. If you're a guest with us, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. Before we get into the message this morning, let me invite you to reach out to us. We would just love to know that you're here. You can go to covenantexperience.com and just hit the connect button and and get connected with us electronically. Uh, If you're one of those folks that loves to use old-fashioned pen and paper, there's a blue card looks like this right in your seat back. And if you want to fill that out, there's not a timeshare on the other end of it, I promise you, but we do want to get to know you and we want to be able to have a way to efficiently and effectively reach out to you if you need us for any reason. And this is the best way for us to make that introduction to each other. So I hope you'll get that filled out. And if you've been along the last, the ride, the last few weeks with us, you know, we've been in a series called non-anxious presence. We're going to continue that series after a couple of weeks off today, and we're going to find our message based in Matthew chapter 11. So join me in the first book of your New Testament, the gospel of Matthew. Again, we've been making a pretty bold claim, uh, a threefold claim, really. Number one, that anxiety is not merely a liability that needs to be dispensed of. It is a tool that oftentimes God will use in our lives to leverage for his glory. So that's the first thing we've learned. The second thing that we've learned is that we can be a non-anxious presence in an environment that's filled with anxiety. And so not only can we live internally non-anxiously, we can leverage even our anxious moments for the glory of God. And we can do so in such a way that the outside world that at this moment is probably more filled with angst than it's ever been ever before in any of our lifetimes can look at us and and be kind of like people in a desert that have found an oasis. That's God's promise to us in any moment, but especially in anxiety filled moments. Now, the first couple of weeks we, we spent talking about the things you should not look to, to find the solution to your anxiety. I don't know if you remember that or not, but if you were here with us for those first couple of weeks, we looked at Isaiah, we looked at 2 Corinthians, and one of the things that we learned, the the principles that we learned, rather, is that if, if you are looking to get something back that you have lost, if you are looking to try to get control over something that is out of control, if there's something that you're worried to death about losing and you just want to do away with the worry by knowing that you're never, ever, 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 ever going to lose that thing, you are destined for a life filled with anxiousness and angst and worry. And honestly, eventually you just get grumpy and nobody likes you anymore. Right, don't you? That, that's kind of how it works. And, and you don't want to live like that. And, and, but I would imagine that some of you are going through some hard times. 
that there are some things that were once, or at least they felt like they were under your control, and now they're out of your control. Uh, some of you had, had children maybe who were very well behaved when they were seven or eight, and now they're 17, 18, and, and it doesn't look like, at least at this point, that it's going to work out so well. Some of you were doing better financially than you're doing right now. Some of you had more power in some phase of life than you have right now, and it feels like you're losing control. And so I would imagine it's possible that the last two messages I have preached have left you feeling like your pastor just told you to rub some dirt in it and get moving, right? Just get over it. I have not. That has not been my intention at all, and that is not the heart of God for you. But it has been the heart of God, as we've read in his word, to get you dislodged from those things that you have maybe even unconsciously indexed to your peace of mind. As long as I have this, or if I could get that back, then I could have peace of mind. Then I wouldn't be anxious anymore. And what those first two messages taught us, those, those texts from God's Word, is that those things are called temporary sanctuaries. Maybe it's an institution that you relied on, whether it was a job or something else. Maybe it was a relationship that, that fell apart, or your financial status, uh, the, the situation involving your personal health. Maybe there's a chronic illness there that wasn't there uh, a long time ago, and, and you fear losing those things, or you have lost them, and you want them back. And one of the things we learned specifically from Isaiah 54 is that all those sanctuaries are temporary. They can't guarantee us anything, and nobody grows there, right? You, as long as you have everything that gives you peace of mind, you're, you're just never going to grow. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I started lifting weights again. I'm not doing that because I have, I'm living under some delusion that I can actually look like Dwayne Johnson one day, maybe my glorified body. I'm doing it because I know for a man my age, these muscles will atrophy if they are not exercised and I sit behind a desk for a living. And, and so you do those things because you want to continue to develop the muscle. You want to continue to stretch. You want to continue to grow. But you know what you're doing, right? You know where, you know where bulging biceps come from? Torn muscles. Muscles that have literally been shredded because you have chosen pain, you have chosen force, you have chosen resistance so that you grow because in, even intuitively we know if there's no resistance, we're not going to grow. So a temporary sanctuary, as nice as it might be to take a vacation or to have a little extra money or to always, very few of us are going to be King Midas our whole lives. Everything's not going to always turn to gold around us. And that's actually God's good intention for us so that we do not atrophy. Nobody grows in a place like that. But here's something else we learned. There is no assurance that we will not suffer. In fact, just the opposite. Sometimes the Lord, because he loves us, will take a security blanket away from us that was provided by money or health or relationships so that we learn that there's another way to actually live not anxiously. And here's what we're going to learn today. All right. So if you, if you've been through those last two messages, you're like, okay, all right. So is pastor Joel just telling me to get over it? Actually, we went through all of that so that today we could tell you there is in fact a place where you can always go. God takes those things away. Not only because he doesn't want you relying on them, he takes those things away because he doesn't want you carrying that weight. 
If, if my peace of mind, if my calm, if my level of anxiety is always indexed to how much money is in my banking app or in my 401k, thank God it's not this year, amen? And so if, I'm, if it's all, but if it's always indexed to that, then I feel compelled to always keep that thing propped up, to always keep it going. It becomes a God that I serve rather than the true and living God who serves me. And I become a slave to that thing, and I can't ever quite get out from under it. And so God sometimes will take those things away because he doesn't want us carrying the weight like that on our shoulders. And so he makes us a promise. We find that promise in Matthew 11 and verse 30. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, that in a world filled with anxiety is powerful. It's powerful. And what we're going to learn today is that we can go to a place, to a person actually, where we're going to find calm that we need in the moments like so many of us have experienced recently. But as, as we talk about the background of Matthew 11, what we're going to run into first is that there's a really, really hard story that forms the background and the context of this discussion. It all begins in verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, let me remind you just in case you'd forgotten who this is. This is John the Baptist. This is the large and in charge, loud, boisterous, tell the truth when nobody else will, bold prophet. He's been calling people to repent of their sins. He is the forerunner of his cousin, the Lord Jesus. He's the one that declared as Jesus approached the Jordan River, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when you think about who this is and the question he's asking, I think it's only natural to ask, what on earth would have caused him to get to the point that we read about here in verse 2, where he sends word from a prison cell to, his, to Jesus' disciples and said, hey, reach out to my cousin and ask him, just, I just want to make sure I got this right. Cousin, are you really the one? Or is there somebody else that we ought to be looking toward? Is there somebody, did I get this wrong? Did I get this wrong? Well, there's a couple of reasons why he would probably have doubts. The first one's obvious from verse 2. He's in prison. This is not how anybody who's faithful to God wants things to end, although it certainly did for John. He's, he's in prison. And, and moreover, we don't realize from this verse alone how bad the situation is or is going to be for John until we get about three chapters into the future. When we get to Matthew 14, you see just how really dark this whole situation is. And I'll just warn you in advance, this is, this is one of those parts of the Bible that carries an R rating. He is there in this cell because he told the truth. Because he told the truth to authority. Because he spoke to King Herod, who at the time was sleeping with Herodias, who was not his wife and was actually the wife of his brother, Philip. So he's having sex with his sister-in-law regularly and openly. Right? We, we talk about sin cities like Vegas or New Orleans or somewhere like that. And the truth of the matter is there's not a city in America that doesn't have the same depth of depravity in it that cities like that too. But, but the only difference is in Vegas and in New Orleans, maybe in a few other places I've forgotten about, they run it up a flagpole. They're quite proud of it right? They love the debauchery. This is what we're all about. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That, that phrase doesn't come from anything good. Y'all know that, right? 
And so we, we know that, that, that that's pretty much what this was. It was a Vegas kind of attitude, a, a New Orleans kind of an attitude. We're going to live this way. We're going to enjoy each other. And we're going to do it regardless of what is true, regardless of what is right. And John the Baptist went to Herod and he said, dude, that is sick and perverted and you can't do that. Shouldn't even be controversial, should it? But it is. That's sick. You can't do that. It is prohibited. God forbids you to behave, to conduct yourself in that way. And so he's in prison because Herodias, a woman who is every bit as wicked as her brother-in-law, gets angry about that and decides to have him locked up. Furthermore, what's coming by the time we get to chapter 14 is, is that Herodias is scheming to take John the Baptist's life. And the way she's doing it is just wicked and nasty. Herodias has a daughter named Salome. Salome, best we know and can tell from looking at the sources that we have, is, is somewhere between 12 and 14 years of age. And her mother, her mother encourages, pushes, pressures this young girl to dance in front of Herod and his party. Yeah, it's exactly what you think. This is basically a bunch of middle-aged, nasty, perverted dudes at a strip club that even in immoral America would be illegal. What was happening there? All because Herodias wanted to leverage that moment to make sure John the Baptist's words would cost him his life. So that, that's, that's the background here. You have the righteous preacher who's just simply calling all this out. This is wrong. This is wicked. This shouldn't be happening. And he ends up in prison, and he's about to be killed by the very powerful, perverted leaders that he spoke against. So he's, he's facing some doubt, right, about the message. He was, wait a minute. How did I end up here? You ever done that before? Man, I, wait a minute, I did the right thing. Did I do anything wrong? I think I did what I was supposed to do. Why, is I, why am I here? And this is the environment in which we learn a powerful lesson about calm in the kingdom. Because the ensuing verses are Jesus' answer to John's question. His disciples finally get to him and they go, hey, your cousin's wondering if you're really the guy. Like, he's got his doubts because he's sitting in a prison cell rotting right now. He may get his head lobbed off at some point in the near future, and he just wants to make sure he got this right. So Jesus' initial answer is, remember what you've seen. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Tell my cousin to lift his head above the jail cell for a moment and, and, and just take in a wider view of the history that he has witnessed and to remember that I am exactly who I said I am. Remember that. But then he says something outstanding. His cousin is in prison, doubting him. And then comes this, this saying, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Isn't that encouraging? When he doubts, Jesus says, I, I don't know of anybody better on this planet than my cousin. I don't know of anybody better. You know what he's saying to John even in that moment? Brother, cousin, I can handle your doubt in this moment. In fact, I don't even think less of you. 
because of your doubt. Brothers and sisters, that's a word for us today. When Jesus speaks to us just like he spoke to John, and he says, I can handle your doubt. I am not exasperated by it. It does not faze me, and I do not love you any less on account of it. In fact, it is this moment that I'm going to use and leverage to get you from A to B. And then all the way through verse 24, he teaches this broader lesson by describing two realities. There's a lesser reality, there's a greater reality. The lesser one is the one that John feels as he's languishing in this, this prison cell. That's real. Jesus acknowledges his suffering. Jesus doesn't tell him to rub, rub dirt in it, get over it. He acknowledges that this is real. Jesus doesn't go prosperity gospel on him and say, well, just confess that you're not in prison. If you do that enough times, you know, kind of like abracadabra, eventually, poof, you'll be out of prison. He's more realistic than that. There is a lesser reality that really is real, but there's a greater reality that is the one that will prevail. And he spends these verses describing that reality that these unrepentant leaders and cities are going to perish. In fact, he says it will be more tolerable for Sodom than it will be for Herod. That's what's coming in the future. And that brings you and me to verse 25 and all the way through the end of the chapter where these concluding words are a prayer that Jesus prays. And he calls all of his disciples, including his imprisoned cousin, in 2,000 years, you and me, sitting right in this room, to a calm that is brought by a hope that we can have no matter what we are called to endure. So while in the first two weeks of this, we've learned there's some things that you just don't need to count on. There's some things that you don't need to index your fulfillment to. Here we learn whether you keep those things or lose them, whether you control them or lose control of them, there's a greater hope housed in a greater reality that brings calm. There's a place we can go to find peace and to find calm. And, and so there's a threefold description of that calm here and how to achieve it. And it goes kind of like this, that there is, first of all, an eternal reality that we need to recognize. When we're in our lesser reality, we don't go delusional. We don't deny it. We, we assent to it. It's real. But that there's a greater reality that we need to recognize. If we're going to pull out of this, there is an eternal God to trust, number two, and there's an eternal Savior to love. Number three, so let's, let's take these in order, starting with the eternal reality to recognize in verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is a prayer that models a peace that's reinforced by complete dependence on God's kind providence. And what it highlights for us is the world is not only full of wickedness, but that the wickedness, so much of it that we witness in our world is a fallen response to that most of the human race gives to their mistaken perception of reality. And so Jesus says, if you don't want to fall for that, become wicked yourself, you need to focus on this greater reality. You need to focus on that. The myths that drive the wickedness of this world tell us we should seek all the pleasure, all the power, all the money that we can get. You only live once. You ever heard that one? Everything you get your hands on, and then eventually it's going to lead you to believe that the ends justify the means, right? It doesn't matter what the truth is. I'll make up my own truth. 
The world is chucked full of that nonsense right now. And when we live that way, eventually it gets us to this place. But in this scenario, Jesus' words, of all men born of women, there was no one greater than John. Here's what we learn, that it's not the powerful Judean king. It's not the guy who has his hands on the levers of power at this moment who is getting away with perversion. It is actually the ridiculed, suffering prisoner who's about to be executed that Jesus says is the greatest man ever born to women. Brother, sister, if Jesus says that about you, it does not matter what the president says about you. It does not matter what a king says about you. It doesn't matter what anybody else says about you. The aim is to be faithful to Jesus, and that greater reality, you and I are going to experience that one day. His words about John are a sample of the wider witness of Scripture that in reality, it really is actually the marginalized who at the end of the age are going to occupy thrones. And it's the stubborn and the unrepentant who are going to be brought to their graves and forgotten. And God has chosen, Jesus says furthermore here, to hide this reality from those the world deems wise, those who are actually living under this delusion, those who think you must depend on power or control or pleasure. He's hiding all of this from them. He reveals this greater reality to little children. And it's funny, if you look at this in the Greek text, it actually just says littles. He's agreed. He has revealed all of this to the littles. Now, I, that, that's not a phrase, I'll be honest with you, that I've heard of. Maybe you have heard of it outside this region. But, but I didn't hear that word littles until I got to West Virginia uh, to hear a mother talk about her children. But what I've learned after seven years here is that if you take a West Virginia mom and she, let's say, for example, she's got five children, all right, and you ask her, how many children do you have? She's not going to, if she's a West Virginia mom, tell you, well, I have five children. That's not how she answers that question. She says, well, I've got our adult daughter, and she's in her 20s. And then we've got two teens at home, and they're 16 and 13. And then I've got my littles. I got two of those. You ever notice that's how somebody, a mom in West Virginia described? What does she mean when she says littles? Well, typically it speaks of vulnerability, doesn't it? My littles means that not only that they haven't reached puberty yet, but there's certain things they can't do yet that need to be done for them. There are certain hedges of protection that they can't yet provide for themselves that need to be provided. Your 14-year-old can make his own dadgum sandwich, amen? Yeah, but, but you probably need to do that for a five-year-old. Either that or you're going to have a mess in the kitchen. If you walked in here today, I don't want to out anybody. You got a 13, 14-year-old kid and he forgot to put on deodorant or maybe something didn't happen in the shower last night that should have and you walked into the lobby out here and you went, oh, dadgum, boy. Like, like that, that's a team. He, he stinks because he chose to, not because he can't help it, right? So when we say littles, what do we mean? We mean they can't help themselves. When they throw a tantrum, when they poop their pants, when they make a mess in the kitchen, when they do it, right? They're, why is that? Because they're vulnerable. Because they're vulnerable. They're helpless and vulnerable without a parent. This is also, though, when we talk about a little, the child who without thought simply trusts the parent. With the rare exception of some strong-willed children, you have to get to the age of about 11 or 12 or 13 before you start getting sassy with your mom and dad. Before all that, you just go like, right? okay, here, kid, do this. Okay, here, kid, do that. All right, I'll, I'll do that. 
They just trust the parent. Now, why, do I, why am I expounding on all this? Because Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew 18 and verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Conversely, unless you turn and become like, again, literal translation is, unless you turn and become like littles, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus saying through this prayer? What do you think John ought to hear through this prayer? Listen to me, cousin. I know you're all big and bad. I know you present as large and in charge and loud and boisterous, and you speak the truth when nobody else speaks the truth. You're perceived that way by everyone. For that matter, you're even perceived that way by Herod. He wouldn't have you in prison, imprisoned if, if he weren't intimidated by you. I know that. I know that when the name John the Baptizer pops up in and around Galilee, everybody knows who that is. That's that large and in charge and loud, boisterous, bug-eating, burlap-wearing, stinky cousin to Jesus. That's who that is. But here's what I want you to know as you languish in that prison cell, cousin. You're my little. You're more vulnerable than you'd like to be, and that's okay. And I don't love you any less because you're vulnerable, and I don't love you any less because you doubt. You're my little. You're my little. Surrounded by circumstances you cannot control, that you cannot predict. And you know what? Cousin, I'm not changing those circumstances. In fact, it's going to get a lot worse. But what I will do is as you're sitting in that lesser reality, I'm going to give you a glimpse of a greater one. And I'm going to give you calm even as you're in the midst of all of those other things based on promises that you can't see. That's a word for you and me today. When we're surrounded by whatever our lesser reality is, maybe it's difficulty. Maybe there's a chronic illness you had now that you didn't have in 2021. There's some, some kind of uncertainty going on. There's, there's loss, either financial or otherwise. There's a, an adult child that's just breaking your heart. It's not turning out the way that you thought it would. And, and, and you just assume the disposition of a small child who can only look to, to his or her guardian. In that moment, God's gracious intention to expose us to the greater reality. And that greater reality is what will calm our souls no matter what's transpiring around us. And if we'll think just for a moment about the history of the church, we know that our ancestors who followed Jesus for thousands of years have proven this to us, haven't they? Forget about all the witnesses and the martyrs of old. Let's just talk about our present life. I've been to some areas of the world among some of the poorest of the poor. I've been some of the hardest areas of the world. And I found people that were content. I found people that were happy. I found, I found people, I've been in some of my first trek into West Virginia some 30 years ago was in the central part of the most mountainous area of the state where there were actually more blue tarps than there were actual front doors as entrances to homes. And you know what I found? I found calm. I found non-anxious presence. I found a lack of tension. I found contentment. Yeah, I found sin and nastiness and all kinds of other stuff too. But, but I found calm. Conversely, some of the wealthiest people that I have ever known, some of the most powerful people that I've ever had the opportunity to be in the same room with, I'm talking about people that have got their hands on some really big, like national, global levers. You get underneath, you get about two layers down in the onion, they're some of the most insecure people you've ever met on the planet. 
And when you get down three or four layers in the onion, you begin to understand why. It's because they've indexed their very value to all that power they have or all that money that they have. And Jesus speaks to us just as he spoke to John in that prison cell. And he says, if you'll let that go and not make your whole identity wrapped up in all of that, I will give you rest. I will give you something better. I will give you a glimpse of that greater reality. Now, just so I'm clear, don't go home today and replace your front door with a tarp. Your HOA will not appreciate that, okay? There's nothing wrong with having a nice house. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of money. There's nothing wrong with taking great vacations. But some of you, all of you is wrapped up in that, and there's this mortal fear either that I'm going to lose it or that there's something else coming that I can't control and, and what's going to happen to me. Some of you, you take vacations not so you can get some rest and have a good time, but it, it's your way of escape, Right? You go, you go to Disney or you go to Europe or you go somewhere else and it's all, and, and it's just, why do you, well, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. You, you're looking to, and it's never brought you peace. Sure, you enjoyed it. You took some really good pictures of some stuff. We all enjoyed looking at it on Facebook, but it hadn't really brought you any peace. And you're looking to this stuff because you don't recognize there's an eternal reality that you're not looking at. And you need to recognize that. Here's why you need to. Because the one who created that eternal reality is an eternal God that you can trust. Verse 27, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, Christians believe, and we have for 2,000 years, that God is a trinity, Okay? What that means is we believe, number one, that God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're not three manifestations. That's oneness Pentecostalism, and that's heresy, okay? They're not three parts of a whole. That's Mormonism. That's heresy. They are three distinct persons Number two, each of those persons is fully and completely God. And number three, all of them exist together in a tight harmony that is a singular Godhead, which means there is only one God. That's what we believe. But even the preachers joke about how impractical that is and why is that really important. Well, we're about to find out. Because although we don't have a, a really comprehensive view of the Trinity here. There's no Holy Spirit mentioned, for example. What we do have is this really colorful, detailed description of the intimate nature of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We're told that the Father is sovereign and that we're told that he, he shares that sovereign control with the Son and that there's no one more intimately familiar with anybody else in the universe than what we see here between God the Father and God the Son. And so Jesus is saying, you can trust the gods you cannot see because I know him, he knows me, we are one, and you can trust me who you can see. If you believe there's a greater reality, even if you can't see it, look at me. Now that is upside down from the way our world thinks and operates and really in almost any other area of life from what I would even tell you is just general wisdom and common sense. Seeing is believing, right? That's what we tell ourselves. And that's not, in most areas of life, that's not a wrong thing. That's why we value and should value warranty certificates, certificates of insurability, 
employment contracts, union negotiations if you're into that sort of thing, um, any number of other things, time-stamped emails. Yeah, how many of you have had one of those save your bacon at work? Right? We, the, why is that? Because seeing is believing. But what Jesus does here with relationship to God is he turns that on his head and he goes, no, no, no. Seeing is not believing. Where eternity is concerned, believing is seeing. And he says, the God who controls it all, who sovereignly declares both the lesser reality you experience and the greater reality that you can't comprehend with your senses, he and I are one, and I don't just speak for him, I am. That's a statement from the Old Testament, going all the way back to Exodus 3. I am. Here's why that's important. The greater eternal reality where we can find kingdom calm is given to us by a Trinitarian God who became flesh and lived among us. It's the whole reason we celebrate Christmas. The Word became flesh and, and tabernacled among us. And that means we not only have a reality that's out there, even if we can't see it, and a God that we can trust to eventually bring that reality to manifestation and fruition, we have an eternal Savior to love. And this is what I think is the most powerful part of this text. Verse 28, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, there's a lot packed in here. In fact, let me tell you what's in this sentence. There are three very distinct invitations. There are two very clear promises. And there's one very personal revelation. So let's take those in turn as we start to wrap this up today. Let's, talk with the, let's start with the three invitations. Verse 28, come to me. Verse 29, take my yoke on you. Verse 29, learn from me, which by the way is the, the imperative command of the verbal form of the word disciple. Come and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Be my disciple. Follow me. We've got a brand new series in January simply called Surrender. And we're going to talk about what it means to give Jesus everything. He wants everything. And that that's what it means to be a disciple. The rabbis used to have this saying that your rabbi's dust is all over you. What that meant was, it was an old colloquial phrase in the ancient world that said, you are walking so closely behind him that when something sticks to the bottom of his sandal and he takes another step, the dust from that throws back up all over you. That's how close you follow him. And that's the measure to which Jesus is calling us to follow him. When he says, learn from me. Learn from me. Trust me and follow me to such an extent that you take my yoke. Pastor Chris has a yoke in his office because he's from Texas and apparently everybody from Texas has something in their office that has something to do with cows. It's a double yoke, actually. You put two oxen in it or two donkeys or whatever and they're, they're pulling together, right? That yoke is around them and then whoever is, is directing that yoke is directing those animals, telling them which way to go, telling them what to do. And the, the purpose of their life is to fulfill what the master, the guy with his hand on that yoke, is, is telling him to do. But Jesus is basically saying, you're, you all freaked out because you're losing control over this or that. If you try to keep control of it, you're going to, don't you remember you're a little? You're just going to get milk and jelly all over the floor. 
You're just going to make a jacked up mess of this. You need to give the control over, put that yoke on, and let me define and determine your destiny. That may be your biggest problem. Learn from me. I have a calling for you. I have a direction I want to point you in. I have accomplishments that are yours to fulfill. So, so become my disciple. And of course, all that begins with this really simple, come to me. Now that, if you remember how the story started, it kind of sounds crazy, doesn't it? His biggest publicist is in prison and about to be killed. Jesus is doing absolutely nothing to get him out of that. He's going to stay there, and we know the rest of the story because we have the Gospels. He's going to die. That's what's going to happen. And Jesus is now looking even 2,000 years into the future to this moment to you and to me saying, be like John, follow me. Is that attractive to anybody? Yeah. You, you, follow me. Be my disciple. Look a little deeper. It's not crazy. It's liberating. You know, so... I, Here's why, especially when it comes to non-anxiety. There are so many harmful places and people, even in a lot of church cultures, where people with anxiety are told, hey, you know, if you just prayed more, you'd be better. If you just read your Bible more, you'd be better. If you just repented of whatever sin is holding you back. And, and some of you, you've been dealing with that. You're like, well, I don't, I don't know what's in mean, I've asked. I've racked my brain. I've been on my knees for hours. I don't know. God hasn't revealed to me. I don't know what I've done to, to do this well, you're just going to have to keep looking. You're just, that, that's a works-based gospel, okay? Even worse is with somebody, even if they're well-meaning, and you, you're dealing with bona fide anxiety, and you're trying to do it instead of encouraging you to leverage that for God's glory like we've been doing in the text that we've been covering in this series. Somebody goes, well, you just need to get rid of that. And by the way, here's what you need to do. You ever had anybody do that to you? You don't have to lift your hand. I don't want to out anybody else that might be in the room, right? But I will tell you this. Next time you're in a place like that emotionally and somebody looks at you and goes, well, what you just need to do is look at them and say, Pastor Joel gave me permission to respond to you by saying, what you need to do, shut up, Okay. Because the issue is not helping you get over it. The issue is how do you leverage it? Okay? Now, one caveat. Some people really are drama queens, and it's not bona fide anxiety. You just need to get over yourself. I just think I probably ought to throw that out there. Okay? But, but there's a lot of legit stuff that people are dealing with in their lives, and, and you, don't, you don't know what's going on. That's legalism, and it's a false gospel. You know how? Because it tells you that, that there's a way to work this out of your anxiety, but you miss the underbelly of what that communicates, which is it's your responsibility to get rid of your anxiety. Jesus' statement doesn't sound like that, does it? It's one of grace. And grace reminds us that the thing to do is not try harder. The thing is to come to Jesus, like a little, like somebody that's made a mess and doesn't know how to clean it up. And brother, sister, if that applied to John the Baptist, that applies to you. That applies to me. There was nobody bigger or badder in the entire New Testament than John the Baptist. Jesus says, when you're in a situation like my cousin John was, difficulty of, of any kind surrounds you. I will be your place of refuge. I will be your source of calm. Come to me. 
Let me put my yoke on you. Let me be the one that defines your purpose and takes control and determines your, your life trajectory. Those are the three invitations. Two promises come if we'll do that. Number one, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. How many of you are tired already? Middle of the Christmas season, you tired? There's a lot of people, but, but don't confuse what he's saying. He's saying, I will cause you to experience rest that rejuvenates. Some of you have already been at some life stage or some moment of stress or, or some place where you had a million things on your mind and you hit your head on the, on the pillow at night and even though it had been a long day and you're physically exhausted, you can't shut your mind off. You ever been there? Can't go to sleep, can't get to sleep, lay in the bed for 12 hours, 13 hours, 14 hours, you still get up, you're still tired, you're still grumpy. Jesus knows the difference between merely going to sleep and actually getting rest. He knows the difference. And if you're in that place right now, he can give you rest. This is not a nap, okay? This is not a nap. For people that struggle with the sin of sloth, this is not your place to check out. Come to me and I will give you rest. Oh, oh, it's great. I worked 25 hours this week. I need a nap. Yeah. We forget sometimes Sabbath is important. Some of y'all work seven days a week, hundred hour weeks, and you act like that's a good thing and that everybody else is less than you because they're not a workaholic. And actually what's happening is you're, you're sinning against God. Because God did not make your body to do that, which means you're abusing the body that God gave you to do that. Which, by the way, is sometimes why I say no to people relative to our staff. Because I keep a pretty good record of the hours our staff put in. And when they get to about that 55, 60-hour limit, um, yeah, we're going to have to deal with this next week or we're going to have to deal with this next month. Right? Well, I do this. Well, I do that. Yeah, I can't help it if you're violating the, the, the Sabbath. That's not my problem. But I'm not going to have my staff doing that. The other side of that is <laughs> six days you're supposed to work, right? And, and so there's, a, there's this balance here. So, so Jesus isn't talking about a nap. He's talking about rejuvenation. I'm rested to the point of revival. I'm rested to the point that I'm ready. Jesus says, I will cause you to be well rested. Here's the second promise. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Dane Ortland puts it this way. What helium does to a balloon is what Jesus' yoke does to his followers. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. You don't have to live with perpetual internal angst. My mind, Jesus says, can be the yoke that lightens your load instead of increasing it. I will be the source from which your spirit is renewed. Now, how can he make those promises? One very personal revelation. I am gentle and lowly of heart. Let that sink in for just a minute because that is an opening of his heart to you and to me, Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to say that of the 89 chapters that constitute all four Gospels, there's only one place in all four, and it's this one, where Jesus graphically reveals the very depth of his heart for us, where he, where he allows us to see. It's one of the most vulnerable things that one person can do with another. Not just share the heart, open the heart, expose the heart. We tell that to 
young couples all the time that, that want to get married, and they take them through our, our counseling session, and we, we tell them, I just be, can I just be honest here for a minute? This is, what we, this is one of the things that, that our counselors tell them. Like, look, it, it's, it's one thing to be intimate with each other. It's, it's quite another thing to be emotionally open to each other because physical nakedness ain't nothing exposing you like emotional nakedness. That's what we mean. When we talk about sharing the heart, that's what's happening. So my wife that I've been married to now for coming up on 29 years, she, she knows me pretty well. She can tell you all kinds of facts. In fact, she has told you all, all kinds of stuff about me that I really would risk she didn't. But she did. She knows things about me. She knows my height. She knows my rough weight. She knows uh, all about, you know, what I've gone through to get where I'm at. She's been through all that, the highs and lows. She, she knows where there are good reasons why I may mess up sometimes in some areas. She also knows when it's my fault because she knows me, right? She just does. She, she knows all these things about me. She could tell you about my favorite sports team. She could tell you my Enneagram number, my Myers-Briggs type indicator, my disc profile. She knows all of that, all of that. But there's, this, there's also something else she knows that is, I would say, almost impossible even for her to communicate to you. And that's her husband's heart. And the same thing is true of me. There's lots of things I could tell you about Amy. I, I really, I don't know if I could ever arrest the words to tell you about her heart. How do you do that? For those of you that have, are blessed to have that kind of relationship, how, 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 do, you, how do you communicate? There aren't enough words in the English language, are there? To communicate what just one knowing glance across the table at dinner at your beloved, and just that glance communicates them, to them something that millions of words couldn't communicate to anybody else. It just couldn't. Because that single look, it contains, for us, it contains almost 29 years of marriage, over 30 years of being a couple, over 35 years of knowing and respecting each other and being friends with each other, thousands of conversations, one look. That's the communication of one's heart toward another. It's the exposure of someone's heart to another. Look back at verse 29. My dear brothers and sisters, look back at verse 29. Your creator and redeemer, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, just did that to you. He just gave you a glance across the dinner table, not in some romantic, cheesy way. He has just opened his heart to you, and he says, there's two things you need to know about me. Number one, I am gentle. I am gentle. By the way, that's the same word translated meek in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what he's saying here. Don't make that seem like he's saying he's weak. All right? We get these crazy ideas sometimes. We divide the Testaments one from another. And, you know, the, the Old Testament, God's all mean. He's a grumpy old man. He can zap you for just about anything. He's woefully unpredictable. He's always mean and nasty and looking for a reason to punish somebody just for fun. Then when you get to the New Testament, and Jesus, man, he's just a, a happy-go-lucky hippie. Long flowing hair, got product in it, you know. He's, he's just, I mean, that's just it. Jesus, man, he would never hurt anybody. And it just kind of reveals that we're not nearly as familiar as we need to be with both our Testaments. Because if you look at the Old Testament, you see these massive amounts of text where God actually mothers his people. You're talking, we're talking feminine pronouns. 
and the person of God and his care and concern and his love and his passion, especially for his people, Israel. And then you read some select New Testament passages and you go, well, that gum, Jesus will kill you. He's not to be trifled with. Jesus is king. He's not weak. But when he says, I am gentle, you know what he's telling you? Even though I'm king, come to me. I'm not trigger happy. I'm not reactionary. I'm not going to get exasperated. I'm not going to love you any less. You lay it all out there for me. Come to me. I know it all anyway. Bring it to me. Come to me. Come to me. Because I'm gentle. I'm not harsh. And I'm lowly of heart. You know what that means? It means what we celebrate over the next few weeks. It means he is intentionally accessible. He condescended to the place that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. That's who he is. And that's who he will always be no matter what's happening in your life right now. There is a place of calm that you will never find in a temporary sanctuary characterized by money or power or strength or control, but you will find it in a person. A sovereign God whose reflexive posture, that brother, sister, is just as natural and irreversible as your eye color, is one of accessibility toward anyone who will simply come to him. If you're in prison, even if you deserve to be there, you can see him. You can sense his presence. If you're in rehab, he is there, and he says, come to me. If you're fighting chronic illness, he is there, and he says, come to me. If one thing right after another is assailing you, and you wonder when it's all going to end, Jesus says to you today, look at me. Here's my heart, gentle and lowly. Come and sit and soak in this non-anxious Space. That's why I said at the outset that, that anxiety isn't something not only to be d d dismissed with or dispensed with. Anxiety is not something you can do that with. The non-anxious presence is neither you nor me. It's him. And he says, here's my heart. Come on in. Open up. Soak in this non-anxious space. And remember, all of this in reaction to his cousin sitting in a cell about to lose his head. What kind of situation are you dealing with right now? There's, there's a country song that came out about five years ago. One of the lines of the lyrics goes like this. Turn on the news, you think the world ain't got a prayer. But if you'll turn it off and look around, that was the writer's way of saying, boy, we so easily and myopically get focused on everything that's wrong. We, even among our leaders, I mean, there's a, there's a side of me that should be a little bit like a football coach as a lead pastor. There are things we need to work on. There's always improvements that need to be made. But I tell Dave and our staff all the time, I said, yeah, God is moving here. And, and even as we talk about ways that we could do it better, we need to stop every once in a while, lest we get grumpy and we miss what God is doing. Let's stop and let's celebrate what he's doing. Let's thank him that we get to be a part of it. Just amazing stuff if you will turn it off and look around that's the challenge here take a wider look believing that that unseen reality is there that if you belong to jesus that unseen kingdom is there and at the center of it all there's a loving savior opening his heart to you saying there's calm there's a place of rest there's a place to be revived and and to spread this further
Esau Macaulay, who teaches at, at Wheaton, puts it this way. We have to talk about the joy sometimes. We can't fight the whole world every moment. And so maybe the key for you is this. You, just learning. You don't have to take up every cause. You don't have to deal with every hurt. You don't have to address every injustice, and you don't have to shoulder every burden. In fact, the heart of the gospel tells you that if you give your life over to Jesus, that at the end of the age, when you stand before him, you don't even have to answer for your own sin. So why would you have to deal with all of those other things? Come to him today. He's gentle. He's lowly in heart, and he calls you to calm. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your words of comfort. Thank you, as, as difficult as it is, even for me to thank you for leaving us sometimes in, in anxious spaces so that we can know that the answer to that is not even always to leave those spaces, but to be in a place where we know that you love us. And Lord, I lift up these men and women in front of me, the folks uh, on the other side of that camera that are watching from home. I don't know what they're going through today, but Lord, I know this. I know that you have opened your heart to them. I know that you have revealed yourself as gentle and lowly of heart. I know that you invite them to come. God, I pray that by your spirit, they would get a sense of the irresistible nature of that invitation and they would find a peace that they've maybe even never known before, the peace that you described through your servant Paul beyond all human understanding that would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. So that when they sing peace on earth this Christmas season, they mean it, and they mean it in a way that they never even thought possible. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.